0: Hello, this is Jay Khadija Abdurakman. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Saturday, February 20th, 2021. It's eight o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And I'm really excited for today's episode. I'm going to first introduce our guest, and I'm so happy I had the opportunity to come onto the show. And then I'm going to say a little bit about a project that they worked on and why I'm really excited about it. And we can maybe take it from there. And so first we have Sophie, who is a co-founder organizer and zine gremlin at Free Radicals, an activist collective dedicated to creating a more socially just, equitable and accountable science. Um, How are you doing today, Sophie? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, super excited. And I also have Shakir. He is a community organizer and lawyer working with the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. What's good, Shakir? Hey, uh,
1: yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. And so, you know, it's funny, I feel like that I'm very well known for calling people out in this world, but there's so many people whose work I'm such a big fan of. And I really love what Free Radicals and Stop LAPD Spying is doing, um, particularly as you guys know, is the algorithmic ecology that you worked on. And I've just been reflecting on this recently, because in the wake of the Judas and Messiah uh, film that came out that's about uh, the assassination and FBI infiltration of uh, Black Panthers and Fred Hampton. Uh, some people that I was in the Revolutionary Communist Party with years ago put out some FBI files that were detailing more about the situation. And I've just been really trying to reconcile kind of my teenage years with um, radical activists and communists with the present political environment in tech, which feels so profoundly married to liberalism. And when I saw the algorithmic ecology, I just found that it was so in touch with those early years in part because a lot of times when uh, imp- the experiences of impacted people are highlighted within the realm of like policy wonks or researchers, the focus and the language is really around privacy. And if you're having your kid removed from your family and there's a caseworker at your door threatening you, you know, the idea that you'd be concerned about your data <laughs> is very abstract, particularly when the thing that you feel most viscerally about Is the, you know, your family, your child being removed from you? And what I appreciated about the algorithmic ecology, particularly the infographic, is that it really showed in a way that was immediately available how new forms of enclosure are being developed through uh, predictive analytics and specifically PredPol and Skid Row and the another aspect of it that I really appreciated is that in academia and in that kind of formal research, a lot of times these systems are fragmented in different forms of abstraction, but on the ground, like most people have multi-system involvement. They're not just experiencing child protective services or public assistance through TANF, aka welfare, that are also, you know, experiencing the shelter system, you know, multiple forms of policing, uh, food assistance, et cetera, et cetera. And I really appreciated how that all kind of came together in that visual. And so I can say a lot more, but I was wondering if maybe starting with you, Sophie, if you wanted to discuss how the free radicals came to be involved in developing the algorithmic ecology and kind of provide more contextual information around that project.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's so funny that you gave that intro, of, you know, you're usually here to call people out um, because I think with the algorithmic ecology, a lot of what we are looking at is trying to visibilize like who the people are, the different actors um, that are involved in creating these algorithms that end up, as you're saying, directly harming communities. It's not just about privacy. It's not just about um, like, wh- like who your data is being sold to, but the ways that people are intentionally creating programs to to displace people for specific institutions or specific individuals' benefit. Free Radicals was started in Los Angeles, which is where uh, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition is based. And we had a couple of members who were involved in the coalition. um, And originally, they had reached out to us just to um, talk a little bit, see if we had any folks who knew about the kind of computer science, technical sides of PredPol or these other kinds of predictive policing algorithms. What uh, we ended up doing is kind of getting involved in the PredPol fight more generally. um, And a lot of what we do is political education, this kind of pop ed, uh, similar to a lot of the stuff that the coalition does, especially through art and zines. We got involved also with this kind of very critical lens on science and technology more broadly and the history of science and technology. And uh, one of the things that we talked about a lot was what are the ways that data and algorithms are being used, specifically poll predictive policing in Los Angeles more broadly. And what are the ways that we can maybe like mobilize people or make these things a little bit more visible. And a lot of the process of developing this was just throwing things onto a wall, uh, literally, (laughs) at the offices in LA CAN, uh, which is the LA Community Action Network, which is based in Skid Row in LA. And speaking of Skid Row and Los Angeles, The algorithmic ecology itself comes very much from the lived experiences of the folks on Skid Row, from the work that the research that folks in Stop LAPD Spying Coalition have been doing with Skid Row residents uh, for the past many, many years. Um, And one of the things that uh, the coalition produced a couple of years ago was this uh, report called Before the Bullet Hits the Body, uh, in which they interviewed a lot of folks on Skid Row and across Los Angeles about their experiences with predictive policing. One of the things that uh, the coalition also does is file these Public Records Act requests, or in California, it's a Public Records Act request um, nationally, uh, folks might know it as FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. And in one of these uh, CIPRAS, a lot of uh, documents showing where these PredPol hotspots were kind of showed up. Oh, and I guess I haven't really talked about what Predpol is, right? This is, it's funny because you asked this question. That should be a very straightforward question, uh, but it involves just so many different kinds of layers to the process. Predpol uh, was uh, this predictive policing system that the LAPD used. Uh, they're no longer using it now, although they, as a company, um, still are selling their products to other police departments across the country. Um, And PredPol uh, is a location-based predictive policing system, uh, which uses an algorithm to uh, essentially predict where, I say that with heavy air quotes, where crime is going to happen, and then creates these little uh, hotspots designating those areas. And they do this by taking historical crime data, which uh, L.A., PD has said, has been very adamant about saying uh, does not include race as a factor. They say, you know, it's only uh, where the crime happened, the time it happened and the type of crime. But of course, uh, we know that all of these things have racial determinants, that uh, location is a proxy for race in a place that's as violently segregated as L.A. um, and with as violent uh, racist history as a place like L.A. So that's (laughs) PredPol. (laughs) To back up a little bit. And in this CIFRA request, the coalition was able to receive um, these kinds of hotspot maps. So where the hotspots were were being placed. And a couple of years before, a Skid Row resident named Charlie Africa had been murdered by the LAPD on Skid Row. And so the coalition wanted to know whether or not the murder of Charlie Africa had happened in a hotspot. Um, And so a lot of this mapping was taking place, they were looking at uh, taking and compiling these maps, making density maps out of them. And then from that work, uh, what gradually became apparent is that while you would expect that with traditional concepts of algorithmic bias or the inequity uh, that is kind of uh, perpetuated by algorithms, that you would see, you would get the kind of like dirty data in, dirty data out narrative, right? I don't know if this is familiar um, I'm sure a lot of folks who are kind of in this like tech police no, and space. No, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of like dirty data in, dirty data out narrative. And if that was true, then you would expect to find that in Skid Row, which is essentially the most policed neighborhood in the entire United States, uh, that you would find a lot of hotspots there, right? And what we actually found is that most of the hotspots were creating this kind of perimeter around Skid Row. Instead, So they were essentially creating an enclosure, as you mentioned earlier, um, around Skid Row that was moving in closer and closer, kind of what we were calling quarantining off Skid Row in the service of gentrifying the rest of Los Angeles. Um, And so the algorithmic ecology came out of a lot of this question of, okay, well, if dirty data in, dirty data out isn't the framing, Uh, and isn't the way that these algorithms are actually being used and actually showing up, then what is? How do we show uh, all of the different factors? Uh, How do we visibilize the institutions that are making these choices uh, to create algorithms in service of a certain goal? And how do we, yeah, so how do we do that? And that was kind of the genesis of the algorithmic ecology and all, all of the the kind of different layers of it uh, were the results of ensuing conversations between uh this kind of co-working group of of free rads and, and coalition members. So that's the the very long genesis kind of story of the algorithmic ecology.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Sophie, for providing such a substantial detailed um, response. I really appreciate that. And I, I, I like particularly appreciate the part about just throwing stuff on the wall of LA Can, because that's definitely my process of trying to synthesize and put together these different pieces. And what stood out for me is that a lot of times I feel like people... Begin from like kind of a higher level of abstraction or, you know, the fact that there is white supremacy and looking at the ideology or these these frameworks that are so familiar garbage in, garbage out and you talk about feedback loops in that article And what I find really helpful in my own research, looking at the New York City Administration of Children's Services or ACS is going into the very granular and the particular. I feel like with COVID, you know, everybody has become a data modeling, data visualization expert. And we now have a sense of why data needs to be disaggregated and that you can't understand transmission. Just looking at national numbers, you have to look regionally. And I think there's like a, a parallel with, you know, various types of policing systems, including child welfare, um, And so that's what I really appreciated, even though I'm not necessarily from L.A., like the way that you guys approached it, you know, really resonated with me and trying to make sense of what we're experiencing here. And Shakir, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to um, kind of your initial impression with these results. I know that you have been heavily involved with every, every aspect of Stop LAPD spying for a long time. And you know, were you surprised by this? And how how have you seen kind of the reception from LA stop LAPD spying space to the infographic and kind of this uh, making visible of the of the algorithmic systems?
1: Yeah, thanks, Khadija. Yeah, I think it so I think it's been a really helpful tool in that way of of kind of being able to uh, depict and visualize what people a little bit just already knew in their own experience you know when especially when you're talking about something like algorithms and predictive policing it's hard to you know to to just if that's all you're focused on to just talk about the role and the experience of the algorithm that's not gonna that's not how the harm shows up in in my life or in the life of anyone but people do know about you know all the different aspects of all the different agencies that information is flowing in and out of all the different um, ways that they're coming in contact with the system or they're coming in contact with police, they're even coming in contact with private service providers. they're coming in contact with with all these other institutions that, in, that are, are part of that broader ecology of how these systems are evolving over time. And so I think it was uh, you know especially talking to people about what predictive policing is and how it emerged, Predictive policing is just, you know, it's, it's like Sophie said, it's kind of harvesting the data from past policing to try to predict or try to make decisions about where to send police, who to target, who to harass in that way. But it, in, in that way, it lives in a lineage of other kinds of also speculative and predictive policing kind of projects that didn't involve algorithms or didn't have the same kind of high tech veneer that we have today. Like for example, stop and frisk, or in Los Angeles, the develop the deployment of kind of specialized these units, like the Metro units here, which whose role is to is to really you know proactively and you know speculatively be going after the people that they deemed you know were either uh, had had you know labeling people with gang ties and going after that, or or just the kind of broken windows policing that Skid Row has long been the center of experimentation of in, in Los Angeles broadly. So. So the tool was helpful for showing how, just as you know, folks are experiencing predictive policing not as an algorithm, they're experiencing it as you know, just the latest version of those types of policing to show all of the kind of to, to show that broader context and to show all the institutions that are involved in that. And that includes, you know, not just LAPD, which is maybe the 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 most direct kind of tip of the knife manifestation of it, but also. The industrial actors that were involved in, in in driving it, the the kind of real estate developers, real estate interests that, like Sophie was saying, play a role through the shaping, um, play a role in, in shaping how policing is going to manifest. And so, even with Predpol, what we're now uncovering, and this is this comes out of the tool helping us kind of analyze, okay, where where do we need to research after we've done this work of documenting the harm, documenting people's experience of it, and then also filing all those Public Records Act requests of LAPD and and learning about how, how predictive policing was developed. Now we're also filing Public Records Act requests of developers and business improvement districts and their communications with the police and their communications with city agencies. And we've discovered that a lot of these business improvement districts, which are basically kind of groups of of uh, real estate developers and speculators in a neighborhood, how they were also plugged into Predpol on both ends of it. They were receiving the reports. They were, of course, then, you know, doing tips and passing things on to LAPD. That was all part of the, the system of 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 how police were targeting neighborhoods, how police developed those enclosure zones that that Sophie was talking about, and then even just more broadly of how the entire system of policing is evolving. Now that that depends on kind of. Uh, you know, innovation and complicity of academic researchers. PredPol was developed by uh, a couple of academics at, at UCLA, as well as the University of California, Irvine, who were, one was actually an anthropologist whose whose work previously focused on kind of modeling hunter-gatherers and, and kind of uh, that archaeological work like that. He then applied these models to policing and to trying to predict crime. Um, along with another academic at UC, at UC Irvine, like I mentioned, you know, through this collaboration with LAPD, developed this program, tested it out, um, and you know, saw the results. And then they, so that, this was actually before PredPol, a program that they had been developing for many years called Laser Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and Restoration. That was a direct LAPD program. Then they used that and the research and the kind of peer-reviewed results that they generated from that to create PredPol, which is this. Uh, private business, like Sophie mentioned, that's now selling that product across the country to other police departments. So being able to see that broader picture and that cycle and map it out also helps us now know who we need to who we need to be organizing against and target. It. it's not just going to be the LAPD and their single tool. It's going to be that whole ecosystem of okay, what are the ways that this academic complicity is operating and spreading these? What are the companies that are doing it? And so in order to really address this harm, we we address the harm of predictive policing. It, um, we know that our fight can't just be about ending predpole, ending LAPD's use of predpoll. It's also confronting that whole ecosystem and everybody who is part of um, kind of building and rebuilding and reshaping and reforming policing into um something that you know, is expanding over time is becoming more durable and harder to dismantle over time. So yeah, so I think it, it helped kind of uh, map out our broader fright and also to sh- and and to you know, bring to life people's experiences of how it's e- even in, in, in what in how they've seen the system evolve over time and how they're experiencing it, it's more than just the algorithm. it's more than just the computer program.
2: And also this is kind of like my, Uh, I don't know, not pet peeve, but like the thing that I'm always like, oh, we need to include this in in whatever we're writing about. Um, Because I do think that companies like Microsoft or like HP um, get away with things that companies uh, that are like, when you say the word Palantir, or when you talk about like, Um, something like facial recognition, I think you often get that, like, ooh, like, bad vibes kind of (laughs) feeling from them, even if you're just talking to, like, general members of the public or folks who have, like, a little bit of knowledge around, like, policing tech. But it's just uh, these larger companies that create the mundane technology, as you mentioned, are the companies that can continue to profit off of the LAPD while they're selling them products and Uh, Contract and uh, being like contractors with them. Uh, And then on the other hand, put out these statements, right? I think it was most egregious. We saw it happen several times in June after the murder of George Floyd and these uprisings uh, where these companies would put out these statements about racial equity, about standing for Black lives. And it's like, you know, this is while we're doing, uh, we're working on this defund surveillance campaign right now. This is when we're looking through the LAPD's expenditures, their budgets, and seeing millions of dollars going to Microsoft to create uh, these different databases, to create different uh, software that allows the LAPD to keep doing what they are doing. And I, so I think that that's one thing that we've been talking about a lot is what are the ways that like we can make it so that it's not just a couple of tech companies that have like that, that dirty name, uh, but also think about ways to target these other tech companies and demand that they stop selling and that they stop contracting uh, with the LAPD. I mean, I think you you saw like the No Tech for Ice kind of campaigns, and there have been, I think, successful campaigns often led by tech workers themselves um, to get companies to stop selling uh, or to stop creating products that are uh, actively harmful. And I think that's a hopeful sign for us with uh, what we could accomplish with the LAPD or with, with other police departments with um, these these different tech companies, uh, and I say when I say with the LAPD, I mean absolutely not with the LAPD, but to get these companies to stop working with the LAPD. But yeah, I think you can see that with like the the algorithmic ecology too. Is that when we talk about um, these different private interests, and also nonprofits, and also different foundations, those are all part of the folks who are creating these products. They're definitely a part of the ecology. Um, For me, like, uh, so I actually come from an evolutionary biology and like ecological um, kind of science-y background. And one of the things that I think gets overlooked a lot in the algorithmic ecology is that we call it an ecology, right? Like we don't call it an algorithmic system or like a network or something. And one of the things that I really like about that model is that it shows that just removing some parts of it are not enough. Um, Because if you remove like a species from a niche uh, in some kind of uh, ecosystem, then there will just be evolution, there will just be changes, uh, and other species will fill that niche back in, right? And so I think that's really clear with the ecology is that if you just remove uh, like one part of this ecology, if you remove for in this case, like a records management system that uh, some company has created, uh, another company will come. In and fill that in. If we don't start to target like other parts of the the algorithmic ecology at the same time, if we don't start to talk about abolishing the police, if we don't start to talk about um, the ways that nonprofits, academia are complicit, their research is creating the need for the need that is created by things like Shakir mentioned, real estate developers, etc., etc., uh, the city itself, uh, the mayor—they're the ones who are creating this quote-unquote need for these programs that. Tech companies are then creating.
1: Yeah, and I I could add to that that I mean especially as we're we're looking at these companies and like Sophie was mentioning kind of looking at them in the context of the statements they were making this summer, that that it's of course you know people we think about Palantir as this really harmful um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know layer on top of. Layer that's that's expanding the harm of what LAPD does, but even like the the role of companies like Microsoft and um, HP and them, it's not just that they're kind of providing this like mundane background infrastructure. They're direct. They're critical to the harm that LAPD is doing of of these records management systems. It's it's not just some you know kind of infrastructure. It's it's the tool that they're using to to when they're going out and fill, and and generating when they're when they're stopping and arresting people all the time and they need to and and filling out reports and filling them through their systems being able to catalog and analyze and 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 quickly search and apply artificial intelligence to those that is that's really critical and central to the harm of to of predictive policing and of and even before predictive policing of just broadly surveillance and and data driven policing in general so so i I think you know making that really legible making that the role that police like the kind of putting attention on on just this like model of policing that's based on just generating lots of data about people about monitoring people about kind of uh, using that data to have to develop hunches to know who to target that's all um you know a crucial part of of the harm that that policing has and, and really, yeah, show, kind of revealing that, I think, has been something that I found the algorithmic ecology really useful for. And then kind of, again, going back to, to the summer, watching those statements, I think the algorithmic ecology tool has also been really helpful for me of seeing how even the kind of statements or or uh, uh, kind of solidarity that, that these companies were trying to signal um, was also part of their of this ecosystem evolving in response to the, the kind of shock or crisis that came from the uprising. Watching you know, Microsoft, for example, say in response to the uprising, saying that we're going to stop selling facial recognition technology to police. Seeing Amazon saying, we're gonna put a pause on that for a year. To, on the surface, that sounds like a like a like a good thing, and in fact, it was sort of celebrated by nonprofits, um, including a number of the kind of AI nonprofits, AI ethics nonprofits that these companies like Microsoft are heavily funding. But once you kind of zoom out and 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 see this broader evolution of the system, it became more legible that okay, what the, what Microsoft was actually saying there is. We're not going to sell these tools until there's a kind of regulatory legislative framework for uh, oversight and transparency of them, and then seeing that that they're actually what. So what they're doing then, so they're saying they're waiting for that framework. Then you have, on the other hand, kind of nonprofits and lawyers, and you know, I come at this as as a lawyer. I come at this kind of from seeing the role of of the legal profession as kind of so crucial to building and, and and as i've been saying kind of rebuilding and reshaping and and shock absorbing for the system over time watching then lawyers and other reformers then using this moment to come up with those the kind of regulatory framework for for facial recognition that microsoft is saying they're waiting for and then that framework that obviously kind of the power of these companies through their ability to lobby the government and lobby legislators they're going to be then coming up with that 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 new framework that is going to be used to legitimize facial recognition and create a pathway for for use of facial recognition and then you know they they can point to the statements they made as oh we're doing this out of uh out, out of some you know political or whatever kind of solidarity with with the movement going on right now but really what they're doing is they're just figuring out how to repackage and 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 kind of you know, uh, uh, unleash their systems on the community, but in this, you know, in this way that seems responsive. So, so being able to see all those different actors of being able to see the role of kind of legal reform advocacy, nonprofits, the role of academics who are doing the kind of research on bias in, in these tools and reducing bias in these tools, seeing the role of, of, the statements these companies are making. What does that ultimately produce? That's then producing eventually kind of a sanitized version of the technology that we'll just have to dismantle and and or organize against in the future. Um, so so yeah, I think I, I the the tool for me is is helpful for kind of seeing that just the operation of just reform how it's how it's this process of, of, of kind of evolving the system and, and helping make it more durable and harder to challenge rather than truly dismantling it.
0: No, thank you. I was thinking about what is the total opposite of the complex ego- ecology that you guys paint. And I was thinking about, you mentioned earlier, broken windows policing and broken windows logic. And I was thinking about how that produced um, particularly policies demanding greater accountability via um, transparency And this kind of undercut the way that policing as an information science business desired this this performance of producing its own reality to begin with. And the demand for greater transparency in no way contested the authority that they had um, to kind of define the narrative around how to maintain social order. And so... You know, I am very much in the world or the eco like I feel very much professionally in the world and the ecosystem of the fairness, accountability, transparency scholars who look at things in these uh fragment fragmented and kind of decontextualized ways. On the flip side, you know, the why I've been excited about a lot of Stop LAPD Spines work and some of the stuff that I'm thinking about. And also, you know, an organization that people don't really bring up in this context, but I don't necessarily think about them with tech, but making these larger connections around child welfare is the Lakota people's law group. And a lot of people don't realize that the no DAPL Dakota access pipeline was also connected to um, their fight to keep indigenous uh, children in the Dakotas with the tribes and with other indigenous families, including their own or like broader kinship groups. Um, But they were making that connection between kind of environmental justice and family preservation But when I'm talking to a lot of social justice organizations, they're kind of like in reference to predictive policing or algorithms in general. It's an entry point to have the real conversation that they want to talk about, about incarceration. And I hear everything that you're saying, and I just wonder what is your impression about is there also something new that is represented in the implementation of these technologies? Is it just exacerbating kind of the historic inequities that are captured in the data or when you're looking at this new form of enclosure that's going around Skid Row, are you feeling like there's new? Is there something different in relative to old forms of policing? Even you know, thinking about the speculative lineage that was in the past.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, th- there is something new. It's 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 and understanding that is is that that it's it's part of just this evolution and continuity of different forms of policing over time and. When I, when I try to name what's new, I think there's the technology, but just kind of maybe a little bit moment before that is, is the kind of rise uh, starting in the early 2000s, uh, kind of after 9-11 and, and the investment of um, the Department of Homeland Security in a lot of local policing programs. Is this kind of model of like intelligence driven policing and just suspicion based policing and in Los Angeles, or, or actually you know, around the country, there's this program called the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program. Basically, it enlists local police departments to collect tips, um, just behavior that looked suspicious that they would then kind of use to cr- that open files that could eventually be escalated up to the Department of Homeland Security. So that program, and that's actually the coalition's history is uh, when the coalition um, was, was first formed about 10 years ago, this, it, it was primarily targeting and organizing against that program, which which is not actually that high tech other than, you know, these databases and information sharing that is happening between local and federal police. But it's sort of that's maybe a first moment that I see as 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 kind of really important for for watching how this stuff has evolved and how local policing has evolved is policing becoming this more as I've been saying, kind of intelligence-driven, and I don't know if that's really the best way to put it, but it's just like, you know, starting to become data-driven, but just generally like hunch-based and generally about kind of this mass suspicion and mass, um, uh, uh, just kind of you know speculative criminalization. So then there's that, and then of course, as the as you know, policing starts to become this more of this enterprise of generating data and 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 even you know you can think of things like broken windows policing and and stop and frisk as as you know in that way all about creating as much contact between police and 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 black and brown communities as possible using all that contact to generate lots of data on people on you know where you police now know where you live they also are in a way kind of you know they they have four or five times that they've stopped you even if those don't actually lead to like a conviction or something like that, or even if they're thrown out in court, or even if, you know, they're just stopping you, violating you, and then and letting you go, they're just collecting all these contacts with you. And then that's eventually used to build a broader case against you or to just, you know, obviously even just alone is this form of kind of domination and control. As 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 those like data generation forms of police are going on, we're now entering, I think the technology does make it more just kind of, uh, you know, it allows like individual police now can tap into really quickly your uh, like records of all the times that they've stopped you and everything they know about you. So I think it does, it makes it a lot more fluid and and is increasingly makes it kind of automated that, that especially with, you know, automatic license plate readers. And as, as we begin to see the proliferation of facial recognition that police can very quickly look See you or see your you know car and and quickly know about all of this contact. Now again, all of that contact and everything that they've done is obviously you know it's 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 that's just classic policing and classic kind of police racial profiling and targeting of communities, but I think the technology is just kind of helps put it on autopilot and just put a lot more power and discretion in the, at the fingertips of police so so yeah I think that that's that's how I see the technology kind of evolving this stuff and also just you know I, I, I guess this isn't that new either I was gonna say like sort of adding the scientific veneer and this veneer of like objectivity and and data to it. So you know, you you when you're like like you just mentioned with broken windows policing, there was a, academics and others had to create a whole reality for that too, and there was a whole kind of theoretical underpinning or just theoretical kind of you know justification framework that that academics and and reformers had to come up with to create that reality. That then you know we needed this particular form of policing to address that. So so yeah, so there's. There's, you know, all this stuff has has lineages.
0: One of the things that I was reflecting on before we got on the show was how the ecology is also geography. And on one level, like, Sophie, how you mentioned the LAPD is adamant that it's not using race as a factor. It's merely looking at geography. And we know that there's racial determinants in there and that can be a proxy for race. Um, but I think, like, on the flip side, what I've been thinking so misdemeanorland land isa kohlerhausen's book it also talks about sub felony enforcement in new york city and how the primary disposition is not incarceration and it looks at how populations are moved spatially across time when they're not um convicted and maybe they get an acd mm. where they get a dismissal after six months if they're not um found the violation again um and just like this tremendous amount of time that people spend in court and then they're like marked uh, and unable to access other kind of activities until the thing is cleared. And it just made me think of I'm like a huge hip hop head and it's been really hard to be a hip hop fan these days. <laughs> um with a uh, Wayne doing the step and fetch shit for for 45, trying to get a part in. Although at least like there's a there's a way that the pragmatism took the edge off of the pain a little bit. Um, but I was thinking about <laughs> I was thinking about Beanie C Se- I can't remember if it was Beanie seagull or Styles P. They made this comment that Uh, bodegas or the corner store in New York City is just like a big-ass commissary. And so I also connect that to Virginia Eubanks' point in automating inequality, where she's talking about what's different about the digital poorhouse compared to the brick-and-mortar poorhouse, is that you have less cross-racial solidarity because through this invisibilized process of sorting Um, and classifying people, they are not necessarily even coming into contact with each other. And on one level, there's the form of enclosure around the perimeter of Skid Row. But then there's so many of us who are under not just suspicion, but are being shifted in one way or the other, either if it's in the form of some kind of like court demand, or even, you know, I don't know if this is true in LA, but a lot of people are are, are families constantly cycling through the shelter system. And this doesn't mean that they are houseless in the sense of living outside but they have to use vouchers that are distributing them all across the city and they don't have a lot of autonomy to decide where they're going to live even as the city is paying above market rate. And so when I'm thinking about what is something new and like you Shakir I'm not quite sh- I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue but I don't know exactly how to explain it but it feels like something that's this convergence of the invisibilized nature of it and then this like geographic part where we're being moved around and like further segregated.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: So sorry to cut you off, Sophie, but that was just a, a thought. That no, came no,
2: off. I think that that's especially when we when we look at Los Angeles. I think a way that this is. Uh, very apparent is in the ways that even when we're talking about PredPol, um, like this movement is related to gentrification, right, to the ways that the mayor, um, the city government, uh, real real estate developers are trying to protect property of a certain kind. Um, And I think when we talk about PredPol, uh, I mentioned earlier that they say, you know, we don't look at race, we look at only uh, when it happened, what kind of crime it was, and uh, like where it took place. And the, the type of crime that they use for PredPol at least in LA is property crime and uh it's so telling right because like the freaking pol- I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this podcast oh yes you can <laughs> like the fucking police and the city itself are, are taking property away from like the unhoused residents of Skid Row constantly right uh and PredPol says that it's supposed to be protecting property crime and uh or protecting property and it's very clear that uh, they're protecting a very like specific kind of property, which is uh, like the property of landlords and uh, these like landowners. Even in the ways that we're seeing the hotspots kind of pop up geographically, it is all part of not just displacing, not just quarantining Skid Row, but also gentrifying Los Angeles, right? Like rent goes up in different areas as uh, small business owners, legacy small business owners, especially in ethnic enclaves are being pushed out, where are those communities going? Um, and what are the ways exact, exactly as you're saying, like what are the ways that we're being either like more segregated or more dispersed? Um, I think is is super, super, super valid. To go back to, yeah, that, that I think larger question of are there ways that this is different one thing that Shakir was talking about with like the ways that people interact with the police the police are uh, kind of like marking down uh, these these kinds of interactions and it doesn't matter kind of what the uh, ultimate uh, resolution of each of these Uh, interactions is. One of the ways that we see this really come up is in this thing called the chronic offender bulletin that was a part of LASER, which is, uh, as Shakir mentioned earlier, one of the other predictive policing forms that the LAPD uses. Uh, And LASER is a little different from PredPol in that LASER had both a place-based and also a person-based component. And so the the person-based component, um, it was supposed to be like if you had a certain number of tallies of like interactions with the police that you could be put on a chronic, chronic offender bulletin. And one of the things that the, uh, the coalition did was to uh, call for an audit of... Community, huge community pressure, a lot of mobilization to uh, demand that the police commission, um, that the Office of the Inspector General do an audit on these programs. And from that audit, what they found was that the, so. I think it's, I don't remember exactly the numbers, something like five or something uh, was like the minimum number of interactions with the police you're supposed to have to be put on the chronic offender bulletin. And they found that the group, like the, you know, if there's like one interaction, two interaction, three interactions, whatever, the number of interactions that had the most people who were on the bulletin was people with zero interactions. With the police, uh, which basically just means that the police were it was at their discretion who they wanted to put on this, even though they were saying that this is, you know, this is a predictive policing system, this is like automated, this is math, this is not subjective. Uh, And so as both of you, uh, Khadija and also Shakir have said, I think that veneer of like scientific objectivity or that like uh, we have this quote from uh, an LAPD spokesperson that we kind of clown on all the time, which is, uh, he says something like, you know, like this program is math, not magic, so it can't be racist. And they use this rhetoric to to basically strengthen their use of these programs and to make it harder to get rid of these programs. And I think that that's very, I think that's actually really, really important. That's also uh kind of doubled down on so with laser even though they use this rhetoric justify their use of laser when all of this information came out about how it was actually uh no no surprise super subjective they were then able to say okay well we'll stop using laser i guess we kind of fucked up with laser we won't use the person-based predictive policing program but predpol doesn't target people predpol targets places Deadpool can't be racist because it's about places, then they're able to even use those kinds of situations to further bolster the PR that they're putting out for their other predictive policing programs. Um, And so I think that like talking about the kind of language that LAPD or different police departments are able to use as a result of these uh, predictive policing or like data driven or algorithmic Policing systems is is super 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 important actually. And one other thing I would say Go too is that I think also the ways that these predictive policing analytics kind of algorithms make policing different is that they do make policing efficient in a different way. When we are talking about, for example, the PredPol algorithm, an algorithm is just like a recipe, right? An algorithm is just a, a way to put in different things and then. Uh, generate different results, and you can do that with a pen and paper. You can hire analysts to do this. You can hire people to sit at a desk and pump these kinds of things out. And you won't. A, you won't get what I just talked about, which is that kind of um, like technological shield for your programs. And also, you have to pay people a ton of money to do that. And so that's the other thing that these uh, predictive uh, well, I guess these softwares that use algorithms provide is this efficiency for the police. And one thing that we're coming up against is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have this defund surveillance campaign. The L.A. City Council members actually, uh, not sure how familiar folks nationwide or globally are familiar with it, but there, there was this kind of whole kerfuffle over the... The mayor saying that we're going to defund the LAPD by 250 million, which is already just a tiny drop in the bucket of LAPD's budget. But then that got cut down by city council and then it got cut again by city council. And one of the cuts, one of the original cuts to the LAPD's budget that some city council members took off. Was a cut to the records management system. And they were essentially saying, the the city council members, when they took this cut off, were saying, okay, if we're gonna cut police, uh, like on the ground, the police force in other ways, we can't cut the technology that is going to make it possible for the police to still do their jobs as well as they were before. And it's like, that's that's the exact, that's the antithesis of what we're trying to do with cuts to the police, right? We're not trying to make it so that you can do your work more efficiently with less money and cause the same harm to our communities, to black and brown communities, to unhoused communities in Los Angeles, right? We're trying to do, make it so that we're removing that harm. And so one of the things that I try to be really aware of in the ways that we're talking about surveillance, we're talking about algorithms, is that uh, we can't let these be used as kind of the, okay, well, you can make cuts elsewhere, but you have to give us more technology to make up for it.
1: Yeah. And I just want to add something to this, this point about efficiency, because I think I'm, it's really important. I'm glad you're naming it, so, because I think it's also, so not just are they able to use this language of efficiency as a response to, okay, yeah, we're going to make cuts but also that's kind of a value that police reformers over time have suggested and have proposed as you know policing is wasteful or it's in, or or it's 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 targeting too many people and what we really need to do is make it more efficient and more precise that and that, and in in that way like predictive policing around the country did initially emerge as a reform it emerged as something that um, that police needed to do because otherwise you know they were just you know, brutally or or, uh, indiscriminately going around and stopping too many people. So, for example, with stop and frisk is a practice that, that, okay, yeah, the, if, if your criticism of stop and frisk is, oh, you're just, you're stopping too many people and it's unfair because sometimes those aren't the right people or, or, or it's, um, or it's, it's you know, violating the kind of Fourth Amendment rights or something, if that's your only criticism of it, then the response to that is, okay, yeah, you're right. We need to be more precise about how we do it. And for example, in New York, what we, what we, in what in LA has been called predictive policing and laser and, and PredPol emerged there, the terminology NYPD was using was precision policing. And that came as kind of their immediate pivot after the kind of Campaigns to to challenge stop and frisk. They said, "Okay, yeah, we're going to start doing precision policing," and that took the form of gang databases, of 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 them trying to claiming that they were now only going to be tracking and identifying the individuals who they thought were the the biggest drivers of crime. All that really, in reality, was we know is just kind of. You know, going after uh, black and brown youth, and and kind of going after certain neighborhoods and certain pockets, and and again using this kind of veneer of oh, we're using data and databases, but but again, so that that kind of emerges as a reform, and even even something like laser in in Los Angeles, what we've been talking about is the you know pregenitor to to what is now predpol around the country, when it first emerged, one of the one of the ways that it was promoted was a reform organization the Vera Institute. Put out this report along with the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice's like Bureau of Justice Assistance or something, promoting the like crime analysis and and predictive policing as as again a way to make policing more efficient, make it more precise, make it more targeted. But as we now know from the reality of of talking to people who experience it, are just seeing you know some of the. Um, like what Sophie was saying, of how police were actually using it and how they even you know, were putting people on these lists and feeding people to the system even when they didn't have any past contact, know that it, it was just the same thing that police always do, which is, is you know, another tool used to go after the people they always want to target and, and kind of dominate and, and, and stalk our communities, but um, emerged, again, in, as, 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 uh, as a reform.
0: I I feel like there's like tons of material now that is being produced that says basically like algorithms are racist. It disproportionately harms black people. I'm like that level of analysis. I'm not sure if we need 40 different papers on. Um, But when I'm looking at the real granular and I sent you guys a screenshot of what I was looking. It's called maps and it comes from OCFS, which is the Office of Children and Family Services is the state oversight body of the New York City Administration of Children's Services. And I was looking at how they were categorizing race and you know, in part it's difficult to parse the data because I mean, one, they're an agency that is opposed to its own inspection, um, but they are constantly changing the terms. And I just, even though we talk about datification a lot, I just, this rubric is so bizarre. And I'm just wondering, like, what is your experience of race and like racial constructs that are being produced by these as as like scientific narratives by these policing systems? And I'll just give an example of what is bizarre from this maps diagram is that you can be Latino, but you cannot be Latino and black. And then they have the categories on the left, and on the right-hand side, it explains what it includes. And Latino, there's about seven different particularities, all of which are versions of Puerto Rican. It like names no other Spanish-speaking, Latin-American, ethnicity whatsoever. Um, And then under African-American, it's Black, interracial Black-Whites, interracial Black-Asian. So you can be black and Asian. You just can't be black and Latino. (laughs) Um, Ethiopian and Haitian, non-Hispanic. It's like very hyper-specific. And I think about this when we're talking about what is new. Because one argument I'm always having with Virginia Eubank, she's like, have more hope in cross-racial solidarity. And it's just interesting that New York City, just anecdotally, I know, is almost exclusively black. I mean, there's so few white people in the system that when they show you the uh, data sets, they put an asterisk instead of an exact number when you're looking at outcomes because it's less than 11 or 10. That will uh, remove their anonymity. And so that's how few white people are in there. And then even when you're looking at, you know, what we would call Latinx, but how they call Latino or on the city level Hispanic, um, it's almost exclusively like Puerto Rican. Uh, there's not a lot of good data that shows what happened with the separation of children at the border, even though I know like Children's Aid Society here, Mercy First, there's a few different foster care agencies that specifically were receiving um, from ICE and uh, I'm forgetting the name, ORR, the other refugee agency um but we we don't really have access to that and so i was just curious about how you're seeing racial identity being constructed in the data systems or any other reflections you have beyond you know the kind of canonical argument that the system just in general are racist
2: yeah i guess my first reaction to that would just be you know as we're thinking about the algorithmic ecology like what are what are the uh, investments and what are the uh, kind of like justifications of all of the different actors for creating these kinds of racial categories, right? Because race is socially constructed, uh, because the system is socially constructed, uh, the reasons for displacing children, for removing children, for stealing children, like all of those are uh, constructions by uh, people for certain reasons. Um, And so I think like that's, that's kind of the first thing that I would default to wondering about is like, does dividing up communities in these really granular but also arbitrarily granular it seems does that serve like a purpose for the system itself because i think one thing uh that's really clear is that it's not the community self-identifying right it's not like folks are are able to put in like the different ways that they they identify and i think on a broader level thinking about okay and then it's not just about fixing the system by changing the ways that we can identify that we can self identify because the system is going like the gaze of the system is always going to categorize people in ways that are different from how we self identify anyway. Um, And so I think that's something that we see in in LA that is related to kind of what you're saying about like, oh, the algorithm itself is racist is like, okay, yeah like the algorithm itself is racist, but not just in the ways that all of these, you know, compute, like, what what do you see, like, the the papers that like ACM fat or something, or like these fairness, accountability, transparency, kind of uh, computer science papers might talk about, Um, but like, what are the ways that the institutions that are creating these are explicitly profiting or benefiting off of being racist in certain ways?
0: one thing i just wanted to clarify about fat star is that actual fat people complained um and this was also happened the same thing with noreps because it was used to be called nip so they are incapable of naming anything in a way that is offensive <laughs> and so but, <laughs> even,
2: even but the, the name
0: change it. itself is so freudian it changed from Fat star to fact So, fairness, accountability. (laughs) Oh my God. And I just like, it's just so fascinating. It's kind of like um, the National Council on Criminal and Juvenile Delinquency, NCCD. It changed its name also recently. I don't know if you guys saw this to Evident Change. And just, I don't know, Evident Change.
1: Oh wow.
0: It sounds like, you
2: know, those um those foundations or those nonprofits where it's like, "Wow, that sounds nice when you hear it," and then when you hear about what they do and it's like, "This is just funneling money into the police."
0: <laughs> and it's like, "Okay." But go ahead, Shakir, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I yeah, I, I don't have like a direct answer to the question, but just as you were describing that kind of you know entire like elaborate classification procedure for exactly who is what identity and not and then also just thinking about what sophie are saying about this like whose gaze is this it just i it, i think about colonization and and colonialism and and you know i my, my family is from bangladesh and um you know thinking about like the kind of gaze of like the british colonial authorities arriving and seeing this kind of you know would look to them like a very crowded teeming messy place and having this obsession with okay we need to catalog and categorize including like through anthropologists and academics like but really ultimately helping build the colonial state is like yeah we need to catalog and understand like all the different levels of caste and religious identity and all this stuff that that like they kind of and, and there's you know this is like an academic thing that that people have studied is like they've kind of um that that is what helped form caste as we know it now and that that's what helped form the kind of hierarchies um in uh across indian society that we see today so just seeing that and 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 i think that's a Part of like how we have to understand just what surveillance is that that it's not just going back to kind of what you were saying in the beginning is like if you just think of it from the perspective of privacy and that oh surveillance is infringing on our privacy that is really missing the broader harm and and what like surveillance is up to and this broader gaze of that the goal of it is is social control the goal of it is to dominate us the goal is to kind of you know exercise. This racial control to exercise racial hierarchy and just kind of hierarchy across society in general, that's, yeah, that that that's that's what surveillance is up to, is like kind of sorting the population, categorizing us, labeling us, trying to... The role that reform has in that is, okay, like just kind of tweaking a little bit of like making this category seem a little more fair and that category seem, you know, like taking a little bit from here and putting it there, rather than stepping back and, and kind of confronting and abolishing that whole project of of categorizing us and and monitoring us, which is, you know, hundreds year long colonial project.
0: Yeah, I guess one comment I just wanted to share about what I thought about when I looked at this and it actually connects to my final question is that Malcolm uh, Malcolm X had this statement that the FBI remember always that they know everything and that they know nothing. And I, I look at this as an example of they also know nothing. And so much of the, the spreadsheets or kind of the internal documents that I'm seeing from like city agencies, like this is a form of aerial font that I think no longer exists. Like I just look at this and I think it's am like, so what I, what I found very helpful about it is that I think a lot of times when particularly people who don't have lived experiences of these systems are thinking about racism, they're thinking about the cognitive biases of caseworkers and at best like the cognitive biases as racial prejudice of administrators who like develop these categories. And I more look at this as like vestiges from former campaigns about who they separated. Like I thought it was really interesting that they put in Ethiopian and Haitian. And I was just thinking about like various waves of like we are going to go save the world in Ethiopia and Haiti from like the 80s and 90s, the HIV AIDS epidemic. And that's kind of my hunch and hypothesis on this. And I've really thought about it a lot because, for example, if you're just everybody talks about how neglect is really a word for poverty that then gets criminalized by these agencies. And that's like on the surface. True. But at the same time, you know, Asian Americans in New York City have similar and in some places even higher rates of poverty than black and Latinx people in New York City. But they have I think it's less than two percent representation in child welfare in New York City. And when I'm looking at other city agency data like Medicaid. It's like the least amount of surveillance in a way. And there's like equal representation across all ethnicities and races. But then as you're looking at public assistance using cash, you start to be seeing it become disproportionately black and Latinx. As you're starting to look in the shelter system, it's disproportionately, like specifically African-American and Puerto Rican. And then you start seeing the highest rates of the child welfare system. And so I just found it helpful as like an inadvertent record of the way that they've conceived things. Like even under Asian, it's like Asian, Laotian, Vietnamese. It's like very, like how did they choose these? And I can't imagine understanding it like without the context that you provided Shakir and thinking about Bangladesh or India or something like that. Um, And just how they have approached like various global crises that they also initiated. But that kind of connects to my last question was that I wanted to talk to you guys about abolition. And one of the things I was really interested in hearing from you is that I feel like the kind of major point that people make is arguing against reformism. But like what actually we can't abolish, dismantle and displace these systems without understanding kind of the central things that allow them to operate. And when you're thinking maybe not on the level of tactics, but on the level of I don't know, the level of analysis, like where do you see the seams Of the system and when you're thinking about defunding i know you sent me me the defund surveillance link but since you're taking an ecological approach you know what do you think are the key areas and what does abolition mean for you guys in this context and whichever order you want to start
2: i can start i think what you're what you're asking touches on, we had so many conversations when we were developing the algorithmic ecology. Uh, we had conversations about whether community should be in the center, about whether community should be at the top of this diagram, um, about whether uh, it should be something that is reversible. And the reason that we eventually decided on the way that the diagram looks now is to kind of get at this concept of like punching up right Um, of like institutional power um, of the way that the community can fight back against the way that these different institutions that have a lot of different forms of capital political cultural physical financial the way that we can resist too and one of the things that we had talked about was can we create something that goes with this that is like a liberation ecology or like an abolition ecology. Um, and that's something that I think our conversations have continued around. And I think I think one of the things that we have talked about with this defund campaign also, you know, there there are all of these like Zoom conversations that are hours and hours and hours of uh, discussing things that don't go into like whatever the final quote unquote product is or campaign. talking points and a lot of it has been around um as as you know your your work is very intimately connected to this idea of how even within this within the city within the state these different forms of what people want or like not what people want but uh what you would see is like ways that money could be redistributed outside of police those other like city government uh, agencies are also complicit in in surveillance in displacing people in harm and in violence. And so I think we have been very conscientious and very careful around asking where we want things to be redistributed to, but back to kind of like the the scenes in the in the ecology I think when you look at the ecology, to me, while it is a map of the different actors that are creating an ecology that is ultimately very harmful, I also see it as a very hopeful diagram. I think of it as actually a very optimistic diagram because all of these different connections, all of these different arrows between things, while they are the way that money is passed or that different connections between these different actors exist, they're also the places where we can start to create those alternatives um, and where we can start to see how abolition isn't just taking away those things that exist, but creating also the alternatives to them. And I think that that makes it so that, you know, like, if you're work if it doesn't capture your imagination to be at an LA police commission meeting every Tuesday uh, staring down police commissioners on zoom um there are other in many ways like equally necessary possibly more necessary forms of creation and imagination (laughs) to point to the title of your podcast um that that, folk, that folks can can Participate in and a lot of that Is uh, you know in creating Community and I think you see it a lot With like mutual aid networks especially the ones That are actually founded in community And in like personal relationships with each Other and in neighborhoods and, and local Community alternatives to 911 these kinds Of other, other programs I think that a lot of the time when we think of Abolition and police abolition um, It is these kinds of like alternatives To the police that people um, Initially default to thinking about so what are the the alternatives to to a system that is again like supposed to be punitive and i think that what we in these conversations have talked about a lot is that it's not about creating alternatives to the police, but about creating systems that make it possible for us to not have the police. Kind of a very broad answer, but I think uh, one of the things that the the algorithmic ecology um, helps to kind of visualize.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, largely the same for me that I think it helps. And also trying to think in a, on a kind of hopeful note is that it helps show how, how, you know, our fights to build and to imagine and build a world without policing need to be connected to, you know, not just kind of the, not just decarceration or, or creating kind of alternatives to like, you know, funding a different uh, moving money to social workers or moving money to other parts of the system, but to the other injustices and other things that are, you know, the other parts of the movement are also organizing. again so seeing really the connections like we've been talking about, like Sophie mentioned, the gentrification shows that, abolition and and the kind of broader fight for abolition requires also thinking about housing justice and also thinking about the role of the health system and the role of the kind of medical industrial complex in in, in being connected to prisons and also you know rationing health in a way that um, in a way that is also maintaining hierarchy and oppression and so you know I I think of abolition as as, as a process of or as a kind of fight to dismantle all of that, to undo all of that because just kind of safety without institutions like like safety just without police and prisons is is it, that can't happen in a vacuum. We need to also think about all of the other kind of instruments of of domination that just as they created policing and, and incarceration that you know there's all these other forms that that those ideologies take and that's why you know, I really appreciate that the, the you know the top bar of the algorithmic ecology is naming those ideologies and not just kind of naming them as as these theoretical things that we don't we think are bad um like patriarchy and scientific objectivity and white supremacy, but that those are operating through all these institutions and so policing and prisons are one of them but so are for example universities which are perpetuating those systems but also just generally exist to kind of, hoard and, and, and limit the, the spread of knowledge. Same with the medical system, which also in our country is is all about kind of individualizing health and, and also, you know, distributing health based on according to your wealth and your race. So so I think it, it helps show the broader stakes of abolition that it's not um it's not just about decarceration. It's about kind of dismantling those ideologies. It's about dismantling all kind of manifestations of those things, which includes all these other systems. And of course, kind of imagining what we need to build in order to, in order to have the kind of, um, in order to not need police in order to, you know, in order for police to be unimaginable. So, so yeah, so I, yeah, so it kind of helps highlight those broader stakes and also just helps highlight like that abolition, isn't just something we kind of believe in or dream about really far in the future but that it's like the lessons of something like this tool like the algorithmic ecology tool help show how the system is growing and building like right in front of our eyes now and especially seeing the response to the you know very abolitionist uprising this summer and seeing in real time how these all these institutions are readjusting and are and are coming up with ways to you know to to reform and rebuild, including actually like using kind of the language of abolition in some ways. You know, seeing this summer um so many nonprofits and and academics and other institutions starting to suddenly take up the language of abolition. Again, abolitionist kind of critique and analysis helps us see how that's all part of or can be all part of You know, shock absorbing for the system and helping grow it. So, so yeah, I think, I think this tool really helps highlight um, what abolition requires and also how, um, how, yeah, these systems are, are growing and evolving over time.
0: So one, I just want to say that I appreciate, I like ask people, like, how would they solve kind of racial capitalism, late stage capitalism on every episode? And most people are like stunned and horrified. They're they're like immediately demand distance. You know, the feeling, I don't know if you have kids, but like if you're passing an infant to a two-year-old, they're like, you know, I can't carry this. (laughs) Uh, And so I really, I really appreciate that you guys just like answered and like felt accountable to that question. Um, and I just wanted to echo that like for all the shit talking that I'm I'm overwhelmingly, particularly now, optimistic. I mean, I think for a lot of us who have been living amidst catastrophe and calamity, this is a little bit our moment, you know, those who have been lucky to survive in the sense that when when, when, when we've no, we when none of, when we've already never had a guarantor to security and safety, and we've never expected the state to take care of us, and we never expected like routine and stability, it's easier to cope in this moment. I see. I don't know. I'm like, I also am a part of a lot of academic institutions, so I get like on Tuesdays emails to self care workshops, and I just sense that like there's another demographic <laughs> of people who are struggling. Um. And I think that, like, ultimately, like, to the Malcolm X point, like, so much of this shit is just made up. It's just fiction. And, you know, like, these computer scientists, if you're going to Stanford or MIT, you know, a lot of people don't even take humanities courses. I mean, now it's, like, a little on trend to say maybe you took an ethics class. But most people haven't really had – they might know that these systems of classification are not providing, like, the real granular particularities of what it means to be human – but they also are so demanded to be within the institution, like physically and emotionally, that they don't get to come in contact with the people and, I don't know, power to the people. I just, I feel, I, I ultimately feel a lot of hope. But thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Elon, i just wanted to give you a second because i feel like i talked a lot if you wanted to make any last comment before i do a wrap up all right well dope thank you this has been an amazing 81 minutes i really appreciate <laughs> appreciate y'all for coming on the show again this is stop lapd spying and free radicals please rate us review us we are apple spotify you can hit us up send us a letter we are we be at gmail.com that's we be at gmail.com and that's it y'all you <laughs>